0: Uh In
1: what way are you referring?
0: Do you like to walk through a forest casually flicking off the occasional leech?
1: Oh, well, I have done that. You put salt on leeches to get rid of them. Or would you prefer trekking on paths to view a waterfall? Oh, well, you know, at my age, I think the paths are going to be more...
0: Perhaps you might think that all that land could be put to better economical use. Well, away from David, and now... I'm going to welcome Karen Viggers who's written a book which is set in the southern Tasmanian old growth forest area. Welcome Karen. Hello Jan, thanks for having me here. Oh, delighted. This small town, a community where everybody knows each other, and into it comes Leon.
2: Yes, Leon's a national parks ranger, leaving his family uh, on Bruny Island and at last being in position to uh, establish his own life and independence. And uh, being a national parks ranger in a, a timber town, he's not particularly welcome. And uh, okay. so he's bitten off really more than he can chew. Um, and he's uh, got a challenge ahead of him to be accepted and to
0: fit in. Well, let's look at the two sides of this. From A quote from the Timbertown side, a parkie is someone who locks up trees and steals people's jobs. But there's another side to forest, and this is Karen Viggers reading from page 97.
2: And oh, this, uh, this is Leon going out into the forest. In the darkness, trees seem to close around the vehicle, eerily lit by the headlights. This is how it was meant to be, forest like a blanket covering the earth. Further on, Mickey pointed out the eagle's tree and Leon pulled up beneath it. When they slid out into the cold night, the trees seemed to lean towards them, shadowy and dense, branches reaching like arms, leaves rustling with invisible life. Leon thought of the tales he'd heard growing up, stories that demonised forest. Snow White being chased by the huntsman, Red Riding Hood stalked by the wolf, the hostile woods in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Those stories instilled fear that evil lurked among trees, but no dark forces hovered here waiting to destroy people. The creatures of the forest were busy doing their thing. Bush rats and marsupial mice fossicking in the understory, possums nibbling on leaves, owls hunting prey. If people learned to love the forest instead of fearing it, they might want to save
0: it. Ah, that's true. And I just sort of thought, yeah, that's very true about how we learn about forests, yeah, well, you know, you mentioned Mikey. No, Mickey. You can call her whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um She's another character, and she's what the book is actually named after. The book is called *The Orchard's Orchard's Daughter*. Oh, dear. it's a little bit of a mouthful. <laughs> so, tell us about 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 Mickey.
2: Well, Mickey um, has grown up homeschooled on an orchard in the Huon Valley in southern Tasmania, and she's um, led a very restricted childhood for religious reasons. Her parents have elected to keep her and her older brother. Kurt home and homeschool them. Um, But they, uh, this is not written into the novel, but they they don't even have interaction with their church because the father was unhappy. This is backstory that didn't make it in. Um, The father was unhappy with how their church was conducting things and he's very misogynistic, really controlling and things are very divided on the farm. Men's work in the orchard, women's work in the house. And then when we meet Mickey, she's living um, with her brother Kurt in a takeaway shop in the main street of town. And Kurt, because of his backstory, Background and, ...and role modelling from his father has continued that tight control of
0: Mickey. Oh, yes. Well, she's only allowed out twice a week. Once, it's into the forest. And there were two places that Kurt took her to visit. Yes, there's a part of the forest that they love to go... ...and a, a patch of old
2: growth uh, deep in the forest... And they like to go there because nobody else ever seems to go there. And in this area of old growth is a magnificent mountain ash, or the Tasmanians call them swamp gums, a eucalyptus regnans, massive, hundreds of years old, 300 to 500 years old, reaching 80... 85 metres into the sky and taking about 15 strides to step around with a a scar in its side and and Mickey loves to step Mm. inside the tree and feel the heartbeat of the world from inside the tree. She loves its grandeur and its age and that sense of standing quietly in the forest, smelling the understory, listening to the leaves moving in the trees, bark slapping against trunks. The other tree she likes to visit has a wedge-tailed eagle's nest in it. And in Tasmania, the ta- the wedge tails are in fact endangered.
0: Only three hundred pairs. Left. Yeah, there's not
2: many left. Oh. They're really struggling um, through loss of suitable nest trees, electrocution, a number of other things. But for Mickey, these birds are a symbol of the freedom she doesn't have, and she likes she likes to look up at the chick sitting up in the nest, looking out on the world, and soon to launch into into freedom, flying with the adults that that she will never have.
0: Perhaps. a lovely. Quote from. Um Karen Vickers' book. In the bush, she felt more alive, more real. She was somebody, herself, a young woman with hope in the world. Because what would happen? She'd visit these sites, and then Kurt would come back and lock her up in the car.
2: <laughs> well, and uh, but I think even though um, Mickey is very oppressed by Kurt, you know, she's not allowed to speak to people unless mm. he, um, unless she's taking orders. He locks her in when he goes out. She's not allowed to school. She go to school. She only has three books. Despite that, she finds small ways in which to be powerful, mm. and it's those little ways that she she manages to engage with the world and reach out to others. That is the heart of this novel, I believe.
0: Of course, um, 16, when she was 16, the orchard was burnt, or the house on the... And so she's traumatised. There's nobody else except Kurt for her to go to. And now she's turned 18, and she felt, well, as you said, girl yesterday, woman today. But the celebration was pretty dismal, wasn't it? (laughs) Yes, her brother is, as we've said, is extremely controlling,
2: so he doesn't want to acknowledge this milestone mm. or the fact that she should be heading towards independence and his his grip and this adds to the tension of the novel. I think his grip tightens as the novel goes on, and he senses her desire for freedom and look this this character of Michaela or Mickey came from um my own experience visiting friends who'd Who'd homeschool their own children, and and my I sense the desperation of these young people to be able to um, make their own mistakes and go out into the world and interact with other people, and yet their parents were holding them back. And I wanted to give voice to their emotions and what they might think and feel in that situation.
0: Well, Kurt's ten years older and is her guardian, but you know, even to her, he says, uh, <clears throat> investment and money are for men. Women are to serve. <laughs> oh, and she just walks around him on tiptoes because he's so moody. Oh.
2: Yeah, she's quite afraid of him. And, and I wanted to shine a spotlight on um, less obvious forms of domestic violence. So there's been a lot of attention in fiction given to physical domestic violence, but that um, oppression through verbal abuse and control is something I wanted to shine a spotlight on as well as as bullying. I mean, all three main protagonists in this novel are bullied in some way. Oh
0: yes, the physicality too have come of course comes out Leon knows that the best way to get fit into a community is through the football club (laughs) but you know even through practice time the people that are harder on him and hurt him more are his teammates
2: yes well when he first goes onto the field he's not sure who's uh going to give him a harder time the other team or or his own team but you know sport's a great leveler and it's also a great way to interact and connect with people and this novel is very much about the ways in which we create bonds and and connect and reach out to other people in a community
0: so as you mentioned there's there's this aggression behind the team with um, Mickey and uh, her brother. But there's also the problems with the loggers, the loggers protesting against having to not be able to log around the Wedgetail Eagle, Eagle Nest and the old tree and whether that's fair. It's costing them jobs. Well, I think
2: um, it, this is only a small area of forest that's going to be locked up, but it's the principle of the matter. You know, if you take—and I think it says that in there—you know, if you give a, you give, give a hectare, you might, you know, end up giving a mile. So they're standing on their principle of not wanting to give up more forest. And look, um, what I really wanted to do in this novel was to shine a spotlight again on the issue of forestry, not to portray a specific opinion, but to look from different perspectives. And this is something I do in my novels: is um, look above from. a... A different, uh, over a controversial issue and try to get inside the headspace of different people because, you know, it, often it's a values argument, isn't it? And mm. there's maybe no right or wrong. So um, I've spent a lot of time in forests and I know a lot about forestry and, and I wanted to look at that impact of mechanisation um, on sustainability and the loss of jobs that that has caused for timber workers. Not only, I mean, the, the machines that are used now,
0: also it's, in Victoria... Yeah. Um, are faster and more efficient, but they do take jobs. Actually, that was all very interesting because we had a forest, a forest festival, and you had um, all of these different attitudes coming out by different loggers and different different protesters and everything. And uh, but you also had the Ute the Ute push. Oh yeah, they, they do is. have
2: a forestry festival down in Tasmania that does these truck pull and yeah, they have all these amazing things where men sort of hook themselves up to ropes and act like draft horses and pull a truck ten meters or um, push a Ute, and then they have to chop up bits of wood. So it's quite entertaining.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now back to this oversight, because you know we're looking at the footy team, and as you say, an over overlook. Leon looks like he's in the outer against all the other loggers in the team. But the loggers are all aware that one of them is violent. And, you know, it's, it's the community knows that it's happening and it's not saying anything. You know, this is one of the reasons I wanted to set it in a community,
2: um, in a small community in a country town because there's less dilution than there is in the city and everybody knows each other and people do know what's going on and I wanted to ask the questions you know, what does it take for us to reach out and step in and offer support to somebody who's suffering from abuse and what do we ignore because Mm. we we know people and we feel like we have to live with them And, and whose responsibility is it to reach out, you know, and when do we do this?
0: Well, Leon's saw this happening in his own family his father was the fifth generation of loggers that was before he lost his fingers in an accident and this is a quote losing his job might have challenged his manhood by beating his wife was no way to reclaim it and mm, you think, yeah. Yeah, and
2: so Leon has this experience with um, domestic violence himself and he's quite a caring person, I believe. You know, he's, he looks out for other people and their troubles in town and that's one of the ways in which he engages and hopefully will eventually gain some sort of acceptance. He's very resilient and persistent. It means a lot to him to try and show that he can fit in here.
0: Well, this is what he notices next door. There's a family there and there's a 10-year-old, Max, who... Um well, they get to know each other because oh, Max needs to learn how to kick a footy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's a way to a way for people to connect and but also Max is a gentle um a gentle boy, about ten years old, loves dogs and that's the other way in which he connects with other people in town. But I love looking at the world through Max's eyes because children have this really honest way of seeing and observing things without the judgment that adults often
0: um often oh. Give. It, it was lovely the insights that Max gave to people, and he, he could see it very honestly. Um, of course, in you know, a sort of, it should have been um, Max's father that was teaching him how to play footy, but he was too involved with other things. You know, sort of Max just wasn't sporty enough for him. And then when Max was bullied, he had to steal cigarettes, and the way that the, that parenting happened was the father took all the puppies and drowned them except one. That's Tough parenting, isn't
2: it? Well, I mean, it's not the first time this has happened, um, but he did use it as punishment in this this instance, and it's really a reflection. You know, this part of Tasmania is not a wealthy area, mm. and uh, my experience as a veterinarian has been that these things happen in areas where where people don't have the funds to uh, de-sex their animals, and and so you know it's a confronting scene, but it does happen and continues to happen, and but it's awful the way the father uses this as a weapon against his son.
0: Mm. I like the vet. Now, Karen, because this was, a, this was a past profession of yours, so you just knew how to write about that. The, oh, oh, not
2: past. I still work part-time as a vet, and I do a lot of work with wildlife. I look after the Governor-General's kangaroos and give the intruding males the snip so that they can't do too much breeding, so they all run when they see me with my dart
0: rifle. <laughs> that's an insight that didn't make it into the book I can tell you <laughs> we had Tasmanian devils with cancerous as gross but we didn't have uh, snippers for kangaroos so. <laughs> not this time look um we mentioned uh, Mickey who she was disciplined by Kurt one time the only three things she had were three books that were taken away and these books seem like such an incredible era of fiction and all through the book's all through Karen Vickers' book, The Orchardist's Daughter, there's such an insight into fiction. I know we're running out of time, but that just that little thing from Geraldine, who I think sums fiction up for all of us.
2: Yes, books are very important in Mickey's life and, and in her restricted life. And they're a way in which she, she learns about the world through other characters. It's a way of examining life and the world, Geraldine went on. Books show us the lives of others because we can't live all those lives. We can only live our own. Books can take us back in time or into the future. They expand our thinking. They show us new worlds.
0: That's what fiction is, what it does. It's so powerful. Oh, it is. Oh, Karen because I love being in the forests, love seeing it through your eyes. And I'm pleased that it was just such a well-researched and well-characterised book. Thank you so much. So, Karen Viggers, The Orchardist's Daughter by
1: Alan and Unwin. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Jan. Now, Jan, how's your memory? Oh. Is it? You ever worry about getting things? Oh, I might <laughs> recollected correctly. Well, memory is unreliable, if not fragile. Now, in his thriller, Call Me Evie, J.P. Pomare highlights just how uncertain a life can become when we are no longer certain of the facts. So, J.P., welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Now, our first encounter with your protagonist, Kate is when she's having her head shaved, of all things. Blood throbs in my chest. The clippers sing closer. When the steel thrums against my forehead, I scramble up from the stool. My feet slip on the hair and I steady myself against the door. Kate, he says. The clippers die in his hand. I turn and run. The bathroom door whips close, closed behind me. I sprint up the hall and through the kitchen, sidestepping the bench. It's only when he shouts that I realise how close he is. Stop right now. Never run. But it's too late. You're setting up a sort of scenario here, um, the intensity, but it's almost a a deception as well in some ways.
3: Yeah, I think um, one thing I wanted to write about, one thing I wanted to capture was um, Kate or Evie's uncertainty. Um, And as a reader... For me anyway, I I really enjoy that experience of being so sort of immersed in the character that you experience what they're experiencing as opposed to having enough distance to be sort of... It's like in a horror movie when you can see the killer coming up behind them. For me, that's not as satisfying as being right inside the character's head. Um, So that is one of those sort of uncertain moments. But this scenario sort of uh, feeds into a trope of someone being
1: abducted perhaps and controlled we've just heard about a controlling male figure etc but not everything is as it
3: seems so you, in some ways you you
1: you're toying with the
3: reader here a little yeah it's you know there are certain tropes of um, particularly in this genre that I wanted to subvert um, and it's i think page upon page every time you sort of flip the page something I wanted to suggest there's there's possibly another explanation.
1: And this goes through the whole novel. I mean, just to jump ahead, there's another moment where Kate thinks she's helping a child who uh, has a a bit of a black eye, Um, and uh, it's almost as if another interpretation could be that Kate's abducting the child.
3: Yeah, and I wanted the reader, in that particular instance, I wanted the reader to sort of, at the same time, Kate realises this could be interpreted... As a sort of an abduction, I wanted the reader to sort of experience that instead of that kind of cringy moment where you're you're sort of outside of the novel and you're looking in and thinking, don't do that. I, you know, when you're reading, I want it to be, I can see why she's doing this. I can I can understand her motivation
1: here. But you can see the multiple interpretations. Yeah. That could be- uh, placed upon it. Now, we have an unknown perpetrator, we've got to be a bit careful here, <laughs> who's telling Kate what to do, insisting she call herself Evie. And the relationship here seems to be one of
3: control
1: and then latitude. So what, what yeah. have we got going
3: on here? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, listening to Karen a moment ago, uh, control was is really central to this novel, and I wanted to you know, I wanted to explore um, some of the sort of societal forces placed upon men, both young and old, to um, and how they internalise that and how that sort of, um, you know, how that de- defines their behaviour towards women and their attitudes. Um, and control is very, very central to it. Um, but I think the question I want to the reader to be sort of constantly asking: Is he control? Is is this control born of protection, or is it sort of born of something more, perhaps so, more sinister? Again,
1: so it, it's playing into this notion of of that uncertainty we're experiencing, our memory, if you like, of such situations, or our expectation is this is uh, totally unreasonable, and yet there's a possible alternative explanation to all of these events.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. It was just, I mean, I think. If anything, um, it could be frustrating as as a reader. And, and for me, I like that. It's, it's quite satisfying, um, that uncertainty. But I can see why, you know, when you tease it out so much, it can...
1: Well, it's, it's the thriller aspect where you've got to look for an explanation. And you can't rely necessarily on your own initial reading. You've got to sort of uh, weed through. And there are clues <laughs> given all the way through. But this is where memory is challenged for Kate... Can she believe, then, what this man is saying to her? I'm doing this for your protection. Uh, you also then have another scenario where, um, is, that Kate comes up with, a rationalisation. Is this man actually attempting to toy with her own memory? Because Kate has had an accident. She's on medication, she's had an accident, so she can't actually recall events anyway.
3: Yeah, there's all sorts of, you know, what was interesting in researching this book, and I was, I did have a real interest in psychology before I began to write it, um, but what was interesting was learning the ways, the many different ways memory change, changes, and how you can change memory, how you can kind of stimulate that, and how, um, if you're aware of uh, some of the biases in the brain, and, and the way that memories form and change over time, um, these things can be, and certainly in the past, have been manipulated. Well, you've got this uh, male character who
1: is given a name eventually. Are we allowed to go there or not? I think so. Like, you, think you mean, like You're talking about Jim, right? Yes, yes I'm talking yeah. about Jim. So we initially don't know his name and then he becomes Jim. But he's got books on psychology in a shed that he keeps locked. And these references to memory, psychology and such like keep coming up. For example, just ordinarily, did you leave the door unlocked, he asks. Was the house unlocked when we left? Well, I don't know. His face reddens. He grits his teeth. You were the last one out, Kate. Try to remember. And one of the explanation, possible explanations then is a, an old man with Alzheimer's who might have been going through. And so there are all these facts, just the ordinary, oh, I can't remember, to active aspects of... of Medical situations that affect our memory.
3: Yeah, and and in that particular instance, I mean, so much of this book is focused on memory, but this is an instance people experience every day. Did I lock the door when I left? Did I leave the oven on? Because when you're doing them, these these very sort of routine things, you're not conscious. You're you're kind of an autopilot. Um, and there's certain things that help to form memories, and one of them is very emotional states. So if you're very angry, um, very sad, very happy, these these sort of create memory. Um, but w- if you're doing something as routine as closing the door or locking the door, um, it's you don't tend to form any sort of short-term memory concerning that. But
1: then we also distort our memories to sort of recollect things to... Benefit our appreciation or understanding of a
3: situation. If you want to remember something a certain way, the human brain has the capacity to sort of bend. Um, But, you know, I think some people have that flexibility more than others, but we we can all do it.
1: But in order to understand what Kate is going through, we actually have to delve into Kate's past. And this then forms a separate narrative going through the story. You've got before and after uh, in the story... And what we find is there's, um, and how much can you tell us about the trauma of adolescence that she has, in fact, experienced?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to not wade into spoilers, um, but I'll I'll try. Um, (laughs) I mean, essentially, you know, I'm, I guess, relatively um, young. I'm 30, but I still remember being a teenager and and I look back on those years fondly, but also cringe at the person I was. And what we did and what we kind of thought we could get away with in a worldview. But what we do, is that in some ways um, sort of uh,
1: ordinary behaviour? So there's, an, there's a scene where uh, Kate's friend in fact tampers with the push bike yeah. of another uh, girl and there's a bit of rivalry uh, and takes out the brake cable. Now, on the one hand, is that just an unthinking adolescent or is there a malevolence there, which is part of one's sort of uh, psychological makeup? We don't.
3: Yeah, know. and you can you know you can interpret that in one or two ways. It could be the sign of a sort of psychopath or sociopath or whatever you want to say. But you know, we I know people that did this to someone, and they're not they're functioning normal people now. Um, surprising as that might seem. So, and we did you know like we as kids we used to go blow up letterboxes just for fun as one does like we would get yeah. fireworks and just put it in push a letter them box. all in a letterbox and light them all at once and run away and watch and you don't think about consequences or well, consequences as comes after the fact it's not something you ever consider but you tease you the
1: reader in some ways because is this just an incident that uh, of childishness or is there a sort of psychological pattern here uh well the reader's going to have to find out for themselves but also then Kate has the problem of who she she can trust and we're also living in the digital age as well here's
3: another yeah I think most writers in this genre bemoan the fact that everyone has cell phones and like technology is so widely available it's really difficult to write about certain things um so part of the challenge for me was putting Cade in an environment where that was no longer available, which was easy enough. Um, But the the digital age also provides opportunity for for writers in thrill and suspense and crime. Um, There's all sorts of things you can do in terms of surveillance, for instance.
1: And the digital age, well, yes, you do have that surveillance and cameras linked to a phone and all of these sorts yeah. things. But the digital age also means that the trauma one experiences or a, a, po- a little point of friction is exploded and can go global.
3: Yeah, that's that's really scary. And it's, I guess, that was sort of beginning to happen when I was in my late teen years. Um, but the fact that there are these pylons now, like you can make one small mistake, and for the rest of your life. People have access to this, mm. to images, videos, audio, photo, you know. That, that this media is available for presumably the rest of your life. And once it's out there, I know it's a cliche to say, it's out there. People can download it. People can share it privately. People can print off images and yeah. things like that. So... um I really want to focus on some of the challenges that um, teenagers face in the digital, digital age, and that's certainly one of them.
1: Well, and this impacts on and builds on the situation where uh, Kate, or Evie as she's been asked to be called, uh, finds herself, which, um, yeah, she's got to work out uh, her situation. The culmination of this, in many ways, uh, or the point of explanation where it starts to come together is a an adolescent party, a maelstrom of glass and fists screaming, more bottles hurled. My memories of the party come through the warped lens of alcohol and concussion. It's possible, of course, that I don't remember anything, that what I remember are not memories at all, but newly imagined wisps of a night I will never truly understand, an amalgamation of all the stories I heard. I mean almost someone who's rootless in many ways can't yeah. rely on anything.
3: I mean, I was, I'd th- I assume everyone in this room's been drunk before. It's, um, Heaven forbid, <laughs> but go on. When, as a teenager, you know, you, you, like, everyone has one of those nights where you black out and you can't remember anything, and people tell you what you did, and then you just take that, you just have to accept that. Um, and, you, and you do sort of build this narrative around what happened that night. And... and and through retelling and retelling, these the memories can form. There's, there's, this is false, a false, false memory. memory. Yeah, but you can have the sense of memory that you didn't have previously. But
1: when somebody's life is at stake, somebody's reputation is at stake, and yet you can uh, contrive a false narrative.
3: This poses quite a problem. <laughs> it does, um, and you know, like we, the, gas, the term gaslighting has become quite popular, given um, you know recent political issues, Uh, but um, you know, people are, this this deals with gaslighting in in many ways, and memory manipulation, and um, yeah like it's so central to the book, but also it happens so much in real life. Well this doesn't actually all explain
1: the reasons why Kate finds herself, or Evie finds herself isolated, she has in fact been taken to New Zealand, I don't think that's giving anything away, but her memory of events, how she got there, how she's going to get back, what caused her to be put in isolation so to speak the reader is actually going to have to find out for themselves ah. so the book is call me evie the author jp pomare and it's a hashtag publication jam
0: and i was speaking with karen Viggers and her book the orchard its daughter by alan and Unwin. well thank you all for listening and please listen in next week
1: excellent